I remember my broker telling me, what are you doing behind there? That's a shithole. You're not going to get anything there. You're going to have to close your windows before you drive through that suburb. And I've heard that with a number of properties I've bought from him. Um, but that's, that's kind of a, a litmus test for, for how the majority of people choose property is would I want to live there? Um, and, and obviously the, the results are there on the table now that it has performed well. Welcome back to Dash.Insider, Insider, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. Joining me today is another perennial guest, Nick Densher. Nick, how are you today? I'm going great, guest. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited to have you back on. Uh, the, you've you've obviously been on the podcast a number of times over over the years. You're the second longest serving member of the Dash Dot team, aside from myself and Gabby, which is pretty awesome. And you've been through not only a pretty awesome property journey for yourself, but you've helped hundreds of other property investors successfully grow and scale their property portfolio. So you've got a really unique perspective on the market. And one of the things that I've always liked about you, Nick, and I think that you bring a lot of value to the team is your your ability to challenge your own assumptions and also challenge existing assumptions about things and at least be prepared to challenge the status quo or even to challenge if the status quo is being challenged or why. So you tend to have a the ability to to take ideas and and seek to pressure test them in their validity, which is why I'm interested in having this conversation today about buy and hold versus buy and sell, or in other words, a trading type strategy when it comes to property. So to set this up, I'd love to ask you, how's, how do you think about this? And for the listener, what I'm talking about is most property investors have this belief or this understanding that the, the best thing you can ever do in real estate is to buy and never sell, buy and hold forever. And if you do that, that's where you're going to make the most amount of gains. And to a certain degree, that is true over a long enough time horizon. And the status quo has always been uh, that you shouldn't buy and sell because things like you know selling costs will corrode all of your profits. Heuristically true, but is it absolutely true? And Nick, I'd love to know your evolution of thought on this uh, specific topic. Where did you start and how do you think about it now? Yes, yeah, so I definitely started as a buy and hold and I was, I was very much yield focused. I still got a bit of a yield bent, but I've um, certainly tempered with that after seeing how how important growth can be and how much you can outperform with growth as opposed to as opposed to trying to focus on yield all the time. Um, and most recently, like uh, after looking at hundreds of properties and hundreds of of you know median sales price growth signatures in different regional areas, and as you know, the majority of what we buy now is largely in regional regional areas or with regional type signatures signatures the majority of the growth cycles in those have a significant growth period over three to five years or but maybe let's say let's say seven years to be conservative that would probably cover 90 percent of the of the growth cycles in the regional areas right on average it's yeah. five right and a doubling to, to tripling is typical in property value which seems bonkers when you're buying a house now and you're like i'm buying it 500 and, and tell me it's going to be worth one and a half million in three to five years but you know the data doesn't lie and, and the data shows that in those past growth cycles, people bought at 50 and it went to 150 in five years, or they bought it at 200 and now it's worth 600. So it, it happens and it's real, real information. Um, and it's it's repetitive enough to kind of, you know, without without me analysing the statistical significance of how often it occurs like that, but but just anecdotally looking at those signatures all the time, what's typical is is they grow for that three to five years and then they do nothing for about 10 years. And I think the the... The kind of broad understanding of the buy and hold thing is you're buying and holding because of those exit costs, but also because most people when they're buying don't have access to that data and be able to 
pick those cycles. And so the longer you hold, the longer you're likely to experience a capital growth cycle if you're just buying at random. Um, so if you haven't had any growth, you're probably even closer to the growth cycle. So you're better off to keep holding than try and roll the dice again and throw, throw the data at another place and hopefully get the right point in time at that point. So what the difference is with the access to data that we have and with the access that, to data that we give to our clients is that we can take out that huge risk factor. We can be quite certain we're not going to land at the start of the 10 years of no growth and have 10 years of no growth. We're quite certain that within 12 months, we're going to have a significant amount of growth. Um, and if you can if you can bank on that and if you can repeatedly do that, then my assumptions being challenged and, and I think you're better off to ride that growth cycle and then, and then rather than sit there for the next 10 years and have nothing or little happen, which is quite um, characteristic in these regional markets, better off to sell and redeploy that capital into another growth market. That's that's where I'm kind of at at the moment. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? Because what you've pointed out is um, is really, really true. So most markets operate with an S-curve dynamic. So what that means typically is they'll go through a flat period and then they'll go through a ramp-up curve, so like the bottom of the S, and then it'll grow precipitously and then it'll start to taper off at the top. And so you end up with this kind of like median sales price graph, which kind of looks like an S, right? That's the the nature of it. And actually, S curves as as a market dynamic uh, signature, to use to use your term, appear in all kinds of markets, particularly where you know there is a matching market consideration, which is specifically what actually operates within the real estate market sector. It's kind of supply and demand, but it's also not really. There's a matching market principle, which to that degree, uh, real estate markets are much more like dating markets, or <laughs> the real estate market's more like Tinder. Than it is more like than it than it is say oil, which is a commodity, which is super interesting um, because the specific way that the market dynamics move are uniquely different to other commodity based pure supply and demand kind of kind of relative markets. Now, what's really interesting about that is this 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 heuristic that people have that property doubles every seven to ten years, right? Or or, or property property doubles every ten years is kind of the more the more kind of common framework. Now, if you take a 10-year slice of a market, you may very well find that from the start of that 10-year period to the end of that 10-year period, the prices have doubled. But if you look a little closer, you might find that that doubling happened between year three and year seven, for example. (laughs) And between year one and three, it was flat. And between year seven and 10, it was flat. So then you've got to ask yourself, and then also just to kind of book in on that, that'll be the start of another S-curve potentially where you might have seven years 7 to 10, it's flat, and then years 10 to 13 are flat. So then you have sort of six years, and again, I'm using just generalizations here because it could be six, it could be 10, it could be, it could be whatever. You have to go for a protracted period of either low growth, no growth, or even potentially declining growth before you end up having another growth spurt again. And so then the question you get to ask yourself is, is the measurement window incorrect? Now, this belief has served people well in a time when they had when they never had access to information in the way that we have access to information these days. And necessarily, as your capabilities change, so should your thinking. Now, once upon a time, it just wasn't possible to even know, like, you know, th- there was a belief that uh, you could, it's impossible to time the market. It is impossible to time the market. Now, I remember when you uh, started working uh, with us, Nick, and you and I had this, uh, you, you were very much focused on, uh, the word you used was intensifying property. Because you believe the only way to really can you know, definitively make sure you were going to get some juice out of the asset was to buy something you could add value to. Now, that again is a belief that stems from the same place as this property doubles every 10 years. Okay, so fundamentally, no one knows what's going on with property. So therefore, you can't ever time the market. 
And therefore, the only way you can make sure that you're going to get the growth is to buy and buy something and add value, which if that is your strategy, then literally it doesn't matter where you buy. You could buy anywhere in the country. <laughs> like it just doesn't matter. You don't need to even need location does not matter. Just find something and add value to it. But then also going back to the the market kind of time, the, the doubling every every 10 years and whether you should buy and hold, it's like if you didn't know about the S-curve dynamic in the market and if also you weren't able to identify where else you could potentially position your capital, then the safest thing you could do is to stay in the market long term. Because let's say over a 10-year period, the property values double over five of those 10 years. So five of them, the market is flat and five of them, the, the property, the price doubles, right? So you have this, this kind of S-curve in that. If you have no idea about market timing, then the best thing you could do is hold it for not just 10 years, but 20 years and 30 years. And, and over that period of time, you'll go through potentially three doublings and, and off you go. However, if you had the opportunity to take it from the bottom of a market cycle to the top of a market cycle, then take the capital out of that market, reposition it in another market at the bottom, (laughs) take that to the top, how much faster would you grow your capital? And I think this is the consideration that most people need to have um, because we're in a changing environment. We're in in an information age where things things are different. What are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, and no, like I, so I have many of these conversations with clients, and and one of the things that I that helps explain the situation around that compounding return is is what's called the rule of seventy two, which you've probably heard of, and I'll, I'll explain it briefly. And it's basically that the time in years that it takes for a property or or something to double times the compounding growth rate um, equals seventy two. So if I take seventy two and it take and and um and it takes five years to double, if I go seventy two divided by five. That would mean it's got a fourteen point four percent compounding annual growth rate. So if we look at that on a ten year time frame, if the the kind of urban legend is that property doubles every ten year, we're talking about seven point two percent per annum compounding gives you a doubling every ten years, and that's roughly in line with the average for Australia, which is somewhere between I don't know six and six and seven, depending on who you are. Between six and eight, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that kind of makes sense that that's you know that has some basis that property doubles every ten years. But like as as you say in practice, on as I observe in in the median sales price graphs, what what's typical, particularly in regional markets, not so much in capital city markets, is that the the bulk of the growth happens over let's say a five year period, which equates to fourteen percent growth over that five years, and then you get nothing for the next five or maybe even ten years. So, um. Yeah, so so why would you sit in there for that remaining ten years if you can pull that that capital and redeploy it? And I've had this exact same, or this exact situation in my my own portfolio where I'm selling a property that the first property that I bought was Dashdot. Might have talked about it before. I'm not quite sure, but it was out in um Ipswich area in Flindersview, and um that was one of the ones that helped me get away from the whole intensification debate. And and what the the short cliff note version of it was that we were able to buy a property pre-existing property that achieved the same yield at purchase that I would typically have achieved after my intensification efforts. So I was getting 6% or 6.2 or something percent gross yield at purchase, plus it was at the start of the capital growth cycle. So three years later, I've had about um, 30, 30% growth compounding per annum on that property for three years. Compounding um, per annum. Sorry, no, no that's, that's not right. 30% of on return on investment compounding per annum and the actual property value is grown at 16.8% per annum. So the property value is grown at 16.8% per annum for three years. That's right. That's Which is epic, right? Because the, 
you know, the national average growth rate is like we'll call it seven percent, just to be just to be simple, right? So you've over doubled the growth rate, the national average growth rate, for three years in a row. So I can't I can't quickly do the maths on that to work out what the the, the three year um, compound is. What was the price and what's the end value at three years? So I, I bought it at four thirty five, mm. and I had it on the contract. Still, it's actually on on the market again, but because the contract fell over. But it, it was under contract at seven eighteen. So let's say it's worth say seven hundred now. Yeah, okay. So what my calculations are is that the the return on invested capital on a compounding annual basis is thirty point two percent. So on my how much did I put in? Um, one hundred and twenty two is what I put in eighty percent LVR, and the actual return on the value of the property is sixteen point eight percent per annum. So let's talk about the return on invested capital because I think this is actually um, what because at the end of the day this is the, the the actual number that matters. Everyone focuses on things like property growth, right? But what we're actually talking about here is is the the usage or the deployment of capital in the most efficient and effective way. And so when we're talking about buying and selling or having a sort of trading-based strategy where you buy into a market and sell out of a market and reposition your capital, the thing that you're going to get is not going to be the property value. The thing that you're going to get is the return on your invested capital. So if you put in $100,000 and then you sell a property three or four years later, how much money do you have to then redeploy? And so is it, is it okay if we just kind of dig into that a little bit? Because I think this is actually really going to illustrate the point. So your original, yeah. So your the original capital that you put into the property. Now, for the purposes of of everybody's understanding, when we talk about capital at Dashdot, we talk about the deposit, the stamp duty, the building of pest, like all of the money you have to put into the deal, right? Because that's all your capital. So it's not just the deposit. It's it's how much money did I have to put in towards this deal, including any fees that may be associated with Dashdot and and so on and so forth. How much money went into the deal? In this case. Um, it was one hundred and twenty-two thousand you put into the deal. Now, on an assumed sale price of seven hundred to seven hundred and eighteen thousand dollars, because you just said the contract just fell over, what will be your realized capital uh, at the end of that? If you have that number or or uh, anything approaching it, the total left after entry and exit cost and cat and tax. So you, I don't know what the fancy term is for that, but that's the the total cash that I end up with in my hand after tax was two eighty-five. 742. 285. Yep. Okay. So that is $122,000 to 280. Let me just quickly do the maths on that. I'm always slow at doing percentage um, calculations, actually. So 122 to 285 is a 133%, 133.6%. We'll just call it 133% uh, return on your capital. Yep. In, in three years. Is that what it was? Three in points. Three years. Yeah. So if we go back to that rule of 72, so the com- I worked out the compounding growth rate on the invested capital is 30.2%. So that would mean 70 divided by 30.2 is 2.4. So at, at a growth rate of that invested capital growing at 30% per year means it doubles every 2.4 years. And I had a bit longer than 2.4 years, three odd years. So I've got a more than a doubling in that capital. 3.2 years it was, yeah. So yeah, so that doubles every 2.4 years. Crazy, yeah, yeah, and so because you held it for a bit longer, that's why you had one hundred and thirty-three percent growth as opposed to one hundred percent growth. That's right, yeah. And what's what's crazy isn't isn't that it happened because you hear lots of stories of of you know outliers where people had these things happen, but what is incredible is that this isn't an outlier. Like we see it time and time again, and it's hard to help people believe that. Um, hopefully, hopefully, I share my story with lots of people just to to make it real and that it's a personal, it's a real story. Um, 
But we see that every day, like every day with our clients. It's, it's not an outlier. And that's uh, that's why in this case, I've got this property on the market because the the data analysis is telling me that we're probably at the peak or close to um, from a number of different sources. And, and it's time to get out and hopefully repeat that same pattern again rather than sit there for another you know, five to 10 years with nothing happening. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that too, right, is is even the fact that, um, so you've been in that, so we got, we got into that. I helped you buy that property personally. So that was obviously a while ago now. Um, and, you know, that was at the bottom, right? So we sort of got in right at the the sweet spot. We found there, you know, that, that real nice moment where we were at the bottom of the S-curve. Three years later, you have identified, hey, uh, now's the time to get out. But it's not always three years. In some markets, it could be five years, right? Which is really, really interesting. And so these kind of generalized rules of thumbs and these kind of um, assumptive basis for investment that people have tends to steer people wrong. You were chuckling a little bit there. Do you want to expand on, on that? I was, I was just thinking at the time when I bought there, because you were saying we were just at the, at the sweet spot. I remember my broker telling me, what are you doing buying there? That's a shithole. You're not going to get anything there. You're going to have to close your windows before you drive through that suburb. And I've heard that with a number of properties I've bought from him. Um, but that's that's kind of a, a litmus test for, for how the majority of people choose property is would I want to live there? Um, and, and obviously the, the results are there on the table now that it has performed well. That I just find it funny that, that I hear that quite commonly from people that, um you know, it, it's not a great, not a great area to buy because I wouldn't live there myself. Um, but yeah, in practice, there, there's the there's the numbers. Yeah. So how do you? Um, I'm actually just uh, looking up some some numbers here. But by the way, so the top the top hedge funds in the world for uh, top twenty best performing hedge funds in the world, right? So you got a thirty thirty three percent annualized return, right? Which would put Annual annual growth rate, which would put you in the top. That'd basically put you right about in the at the uh, about number twenty or twenty one in the top headphones in the world right? in terms of in terms of in <laughs> yeah. terms of returns, right? Like in terms yep. of annualized returns, which is crazy. I mean, the fact that the fact that you are able to get a hundred and thirty three percent return on capital in three years is is outrageous. And I think this is the thing that most people don't understand. Now, here's here's the other here's the kicker to that. If you'd stay, if you decided to stay in that market, your returns might not get that actually that much better. No, they'd probably they'd go backwards on an annualized um, basis if you average it over time. Yeah, on an absolute basis, right? On an absolute basis, they might not. Let's just be generous and say they say they stay the same. Let's say the property value doesn't change for the next five years. So you've got a hundred and thirty three percent return on invested capital in three years. Maybe in eight years you've still only got 133 percent return on invested capital, right? And so, and that and that's where it gets pretty interesting because, you know, the thing that makes Warren Buffett so successful isn't in fact that he is an investment genius. The reason he is so good is he is excellent at capital allocation, very specifically capital allocation. And capital allocation is a real skill that most people don't uh, develop. In fact, I um, I, you know, I consume lots of information about lots of things, but specifically, I was doing a, a deep dive on um the, the world's best CEOs, the best CEOs in the world over time, over the last fifty years, the ones who have whose companies have drastically outperformed the market. They've also been you know the best leaders and all of this kind of stuff. And the single trait that tied them all together to get the absolute best performance was that they were the best capital allocators. And if and and 
this is the skill that we're actually talking about right now. It's the ability to kind of see through it a kind of non-emotional way and go, okay, is the capital that I've got in the market allocated in the best possible way to get me closer towards my goals? Because at the end of the day, everyone broadly has the same goal or outcome to be able to, to, be able to build wealth. Now, I recently defined wealth in, a, in, in I think, what is, what is a, a useful way. Wealth is the freedom to live your life in absolute accordance with your highest values. Now, that is really interesting because it's not about who has the most amount of money. It is, it is creating the freedom to live your life in absolute accordance with your highest values. Now, a portion of that is going to be money because, and that's going to depend on what your highest values are, because I know people who um, have very little money and live completely off-grid, like out in the bush and all of that kind of stuff, and they are absolutely living in accordance with their, high, in the, with their highest values, right? And they're loving life. And you would, I would say that they are, they're wealthy as fuck, basically, right? They are, right? They are like, and but then, but for most people, there's going to be a financial component to it. It's like, well, I'm still going to, I, I don't want to necessarily live a subsistence life in the bush. So how do I um, afford the things that matter most to me, right? And um, I was actually just uh, discussing this with Gabby earlier, and like frugality, like I, I'm not wasteful, but frugality is not one of my highest values. Like I, that's not something I, I don't. I don't take pride in trying to find like how to pay the least amount of money for something. Like I'm, I'm frugality is not one of my highest values, and so for me, it's important that I don't have to feel like that has to be. I don't, I'm not forced into a position where I need to think about frugality. But that kind of like that nominal figure of uh, capital and financial aspect of wealth is going to change uh, for different people. Nonetheless, everyone effectively has the same goal which is to create wealth, which is to create the freedom to live, live their life in absolute, absolute accordance of, uh, with, their highest, with their highest values. And the way that people can achieve that faster is by challenging the status quo of their thinking and actually starting to tease out some of these ideas. I recently had one of our clients uh, reach out to me with this uh, exact same premise. He's got 10, 11 properties now, um, nine or 10 of them is uh, t- yeah he's got 11 properties and, and 10 of them he's bought through uh dash dot he reached out to me it's funny timing that we're doing this podcast actually because he reached out to me i think last week and he was like goose i've got to ask you a question i've had this long-held belief of just buying and holding forever but i actually think it's starting to make sense for me to just like sell some of these properties and, and i'm like i'm like yes but here's the thing it's hard to have that conversation with most people because it's so far from the traditional paradigm that people kind of get freaked out by it. If someone's, if someone's trying to get over the emotional hurdle of like getting invested in property, you probably don't want to push them too far and say, yeah, you should buy it. And guess what? A few years later, they're going to sell it because the whole idea of buying is already daunting enough. And now you're already telling me I'm going to sell it before I've even bought it. It can actually be a little unsettling for people. But there's a maturity, there's a maturity that comes with the process that I think allows people to make these better decisions. Over to you, Nick. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. It's definitely a maturity thing, and it's definitely stepping stones along the way, and there's definitely qualifications around it. So, like buy buy and hold, if you can't don't have the tools at hand to to be able to accurately pick the market, that's that's a sound a sound um, investment basis. The other one I would say around selling is is and clients often come come to us with this. They say, "Oh, well, I've already got these other two properties. Should I sell them?" My response to that is. Unless you unless they're going downhill, 
um, then you're probably better off to deploy capital that you've already got lazy capital sitting there doing nothing. So money in the bank or savings or even equity, as long as the property's not going backwards, um, you're better off to deploy that and just let those properties be um, based on that same premise that they, they could be, as long as they're not going backwards, they could still still give you something in the future. The point where where you start to go back and, and assess whether your capital is working for you is when you've either run out of capital or you've run out of serviceability, one or the two, and you can't get the, the leverage. Then you go, well, okay, I'm at my limit. Um, is where's where's my laziest capital? Where's the capital I've got tied up that's that's doing the least amount of work, that's building my wealth the slowest? And I think that's that's kind of where what kind of what's forced my thinking on this is that I'm kind of run. I haven't got any borrowing capacity anymore, so I'm like, well, that property's lazy. He's he's done his work. He's grown for three years or whatever. All signs are that we're at or over the, the peak, um, and let's redeploy that and see if we can do it again. Yeah, I think, and I think that's a really great point, right? Because the only thing that is absolute is that there are no absolutes, right? And so is buying a property to add value to it through a subdivision or whatever, good or bad? Well, depending on where you're at in your portfolio, it could be the absolutely the wrong move or it could be the perfect move for you. And so where you actually start to get down to is, is um, portfolio composition or portfolio theory, right? Which is something that, um, you know, we lean massively into at, uh, at Dashdot because- you know, staying, I like to call it strategy agnostic. It's like, okay, well, all of these things can work, but how would you know if if they're able to uh, work for you specifically based on your set of circumstances? That's the interesting thing. And is it um, potentially a really good idea to have some properties in your portfolio that you're like, okay, I'm going to buy this and I'm probably going to sell this in a couple of years? And is it also sensible to have some properties where you're like, okay, so um, this might not be the rocket ship in my portfolio, but this is the kind of property that I'd be prepared to hold for the next 20 or 30 years anyway. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, um, you know, if I had tons of capital and Dashdot didn't exist, what would I do? And I would I would pick some like fairly safe locations where I'd be fairly confident that the, the city or the town or whatever would continue to exist uh, over a long term. Uh, and I would just, put my money in there and I'd wait 30 years. I'd, I'd just be like, okay, well, if I didn't have to, because to your point, if you didn't have the tools and the capabilities, I'd be like, okay, I'll just take the slow road and I'll take the safe road and uh, I'll get there. If you do have the capabilities, it actually gives you the ability to um, to be more discerning in your portfolio composition. So modern portfolio theory is, the, is based around the idea that the optimal portfolio composition to deliver you, deliver you the maximum returns has a combination or a mix of some assets which are going to be low risk, low return, some assets which some assets which are going to be higher risk, higher return, and a combination of all these kinds of things. And through the correct allocation of capital amongst those assets, you will actually find the the optimal yield curve in your portfolio. Now, I will give an, an example, a personal one from my own portfolio. So I bought a property um, a couple of years ago in Port Augusta. Now, Port Augusta is a tiny little town in South Australia uh, in, in you know, it's red dust kind of land. It's pretty industrial, you know, n- like lots of people, when I told my parents, they were like, Port Augusta, like what? <laughs> like, you haven't seen, God. Now, I didn't buy that property thinking I'm going to hold it for 20 years. I bought that property because I was like, this place is going to go off like a rocket ship and I'm going to sell it in like, three 
ish years, three to five. As soon as I start to see the market kind of change, but I reckon it'll be it'll be within three to five years tops, right? I was like, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to cream it. Now, the last I bought that, uh, gee whiz, I don't know, a few years ago now, the last three years and said that that market's had 56.3% growth, right, in that market. Now, do I do I think that I would want to just like, oh, I'll just ride the market ups and downs in Port Augusta for the next 30 years? No. I bought it cheap. I'm going to sell it for a ton of money. I'm going to have a fantastic return on invested capital. Then I'll go redeploy that capital elsewhere. I have other assets in my portfolio where I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be pretty good for the long term and I might want to keep my keep that assets there. And I think it's okay to have a mix because getting dogmatic in an approach and saying, well, you must only do a trading strategy or you must only do a buy and hold strategy, I think is I think is going to be the wrong way to think about getting the best out of your portfolio and subsequently your life. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, it kind of goes to a broader way to live your life. but And also it, it's an example of when I first came in the, in the door at Dashdot, there was lots of quite like binary rules. Like when I came through the door, you said, Anything above 20% public housing, we're not going to buy there. Anything that's on a main road, we're not going to buy there. Anything below this yield threshold, we're not going to buy there. That sort of thing. And and so, and I see clients come through with that same idea. And back to your original point about if you didn't have the tools that we have at hand, where would you buy? And and you, I'd probably buy, you know, within certainly 50Ks of a capital city and ideally a, a bit closer. And that's what a lot of clients also come through the door with. They want to be within 50Ks of a capital city. And if you didn't have the tools, that's, that's probably what you'd do. Um, but but the, the to come back to the point I was making, you'd learn those rules first and then you learn how to break them as you as you get more data. So a hard threshold of 20% public housing isn't such a hard threshold once you start to analyse the data. And, and recently, the team's been digging into that and we found particularly in the lower price markets that those ones actually, the, the, the lower um, value houses in lower price markets outperform the higher value houses in the lower price markets. So you're better to buy at the bottom end in the low market and conversely a higher end of the market in a, in a higher value market. So the, the point being that those rules serve you until they don't, until you've got enough information to to um, challenge them, I guess. And I think the the kind of a test of, of, of where you're at is is when you can say to a question, well, that depends, as opposed to having a binary answer on it. So is public housing bad? Well, that depends or that sort of thing. It kind of, there's, there's a lot of nuance to it as you, as you dig in further, as you gain more knowledge. Yeah, I agree. The way that I think about it is rules exist as safety nets for inadequate capabilities. And that's what it is. Right. Or information, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, capable capability being capabilities include, yeah, ca- yeah, coming from information. So the way to think about that is like, um, you know, is um, is jumping in the ocean safe or unsafe? Well, it depends. If you're a two year old kid who doesn't know how to swim, you better have a safety net, which is floaties or something like that, to make sure you don't drown. If you're an Olympic swimmer, then fucking. Go skinny dipping. Who cares? Like, whatever. Just get in there. And to that degree, like, yeah, early on, like, we had rules that existed because we didn't have in- we didn't have adequate enough information or understanding or capabilities to know definitively how far we could move in a specific direction without overexposing the risk profile of the, uh, of the return. Because what you got to really think about is risk-adjusted return, right? Is and that's really what you you're, you're trying to consider now. Risk is a factor of understanding, right? Because the more that you can, like, 
uh, what's the risk of me doing brain surgery on you today, Nick? Pretty fucking high because I've got no idea what I'm doing. Like I'll chop it up like it'll end up like mashed potato in there. I don't know what I'm doing. But uh, what is the risk of the world's best brain surgeon doing brain surgery on you today? Pretty, pretty low because they're an expert, right? And so risk is only a factor of, of knowledge, capability, understanding, and all of these other kind of things. And so what you actually want to be trying to optim- optimize for is what is the best risk-adjusted return that you can get uh, in any set of circumstances? And so, yeah, to your point on the public housing thing, it's like, okay, cool. So until we know better, we need to assume or we, we developed a thesis where we can confidently say, this is good. And until we can develop the capabilities, understanding, information, knowledge, insights to challenge that, then you've got to kind of have a point to stand on. I remember specifically, we had a rule, no pools, right? No pools. We, ne- we never buy properties with a pool because uh, because we didn't understand how to, how to we didn't have the capabilities at that, at that point in time to, to understand and, and measure risk. Now, then I remember uh, Tim from our team, he said, hey, you know, we've got this rule, no pools. I said, yep. He said, well, I've got this property and it's got a pool and it's going to rent and the, co- the cost of maintenance on the pool is whatever it was. And, uh, but it's going to, because it's got a pool, it's going to, like the rent is going to end up being three times, like the, 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 the difference in the rent is going to be three times more than the cost of the maintenance on the pool and all of this other kind of stuff. And so does that make sense? I'm like, well, that does make sense, right? And so your ability to be nimble in the thinking is also going to give you a strategic and competitive advantage. And back to your point around the, um, the like most people think I need to buy within 50Ks of a capital city. Because again, to, like I, I agree. I, I actually agree. Like if you have no idea what you're doing, like if you have no tools, if you have no insights, if you have no capabilities and you've got some capital and you're looking for the best way to manage that risk whilst hoping to still get a return, yep, I would probably agree. I would probably agree. It's like if you if you really don't, there's 15,264 towns and suburbs in Australia, but there's seven capital cities, right? And so if you had to try and hedge your bets a little bit, you could probably pick a capital city because there's less of them. So there's inherently less risk that you're going to get it wrong and position your capital close to that and go, probably going to be okay over the long term. And you'll probably be right. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's it's actually the best way to 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 do things either. And I think challenging assumptions is 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 critical if you want to achieve wealth and freedom, happiness and success. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I like that's something I'm I'm reminded of every day. And I talked on a previous session about um, you know, my my ego getting in the way in terms of thinking I can do better than Dashdot and I've reflected now and I've reflected on a lot of my clients journeys because I started the journey with a lot of other clients similar levels similar pay and all that sort of stuff and I've I've watched some of them now perform me based on following the advice that I've given them which I haven't followed myself and um, it's quite quite kind of I guess sobering or what's the word helps you to reflect on your own ego to go well maybe if i followed my own advice that i'd give to a client rather than thinking oh that's quite and why it's for client but my i know better Mm -hmm. um it that that's that would serve me a lot better so what i've what i've realized is next time i need to get right out of the way and and treat myself as a client not get involved at all and just Mm -hmm. tell tell the team to um treat me like a client basically yeah so so nick tell me let's let's do a little scenario here right because a lot of people listening to this, as as we all know, you know, we, we've we've all heard the stats. Seventy one percent of property investors never get past the first property. Ninety percent never get past the second property, right? And so it's easy to assume that the largest cohort of property investors have got one property, but in fact, the largest cohort of property investors have got no property. So they're sort of just trying to work out how to get started, and nobody knows how many's in that in that category. But it's got to be millions, right? Millions of people who are 
desperate to get started, don't know what to do. And then the next biggest cohort of people who got started and made a mistake and now they're stuck. But if you're speaking to someone out there who's got somewhere between zero and one properties and they're trying to work out, well, how should I think about approaching my portfolio strategy from day one, right? We're talking about buying and selling and we've talked about all of these kind of things and challenging assumptions. What advice or guidance would you give to someone who's just in the early stages of their journey? How would they think about this? Is it the right time for them to be thinking about this kind of like buy and sell stuff? Or is it like, what? just put yourself into mind, pretend like you're speaking to someone who's just on the start of their journey. What advice would you give them at this stage? Well, the, the advice that I wish wish I'd had back at, the, back at the start was would be buy and trust. And that's... Mm. I'm just talking about my own journey, what I'd wish I'd done. I should have bought in trust because that's, that's made me hit a wall, having some properties in my personal name that have kind of limited flexibility and other things. Um, and I think the other thing, I, I probably wouldn't be considering the whole buy and sell thing at this at this stage at the start. I'd just be trying to buy good quality property because that comes later. Like if that comes when your portfolio reaches a certain maturity and you reach a certain, I guess, um, financial situation which i talked about earlier where you, where you're kind of you've got lazy capital sitting there that you can do better with but generally speaking unless the property is going backwards unless you have a good evidence that you're that you're in a, a market that's peaked and likely to go backwards my my feeling would be to keep keep money in property because that's probably where it's going to be best rather than pulling it out and sitting it in a bank and use any other source first until you run out of money and then you go back to your portfolio and start considering what's the which is the laziest capital there um but the biggest one for me would be would be the trust and also that shift to growth thinking so i was like i said i was very much yield focused and i think that was part and parcel with the time like there was a there was a golden time four years ago as you know where every property you bought you had more income coming in at the end of the settlement which was amazing but as times have changed, like and, and as you analyze what's contributing to your wealth in the majority, it's by far and away the capital growth. Like the yield is bugger all. Like it's um it's nice to say I've got I've got a six or a seven percent yielding property, but if you could sacrifice two percentage points of yield and get um, you know, two percentage points of growth, because you're acting on such a bigger sum of money, it, it makes a huge amount of difference. So if, if I had my time again, I wouldn't be as yield-focused. I'd have a smaller footprint because I would have eaten away more of my serviceability without going for yield-focused assets. But I expect I would have had a better um, overall wealth position by buying in those those higher growth areas, which to be fair, at the time when I was when I first was buying with Dashdot, we didn't have that capability to kind of discern between the two. But now it's, it's kind of like chalk and cheese when you get into a growth market. You, we, we, they're talking like, unbelievable amounts of growth yeah at one point it was kind of like a blended approach it was like okay we can get growth and yield and we can get but now again this is another case of like developing better capabilities now we can get really deep on this specific market that's explosive growth this specific market really good rent capabilities and yields and all of that kind of stuff so there, yeah that's that's super interesting hey by the way um slight segue and don't want to overcomplicate this conversation but have you looked at cgt deferment in trusts no, didn't ever, didn't even know the term. Mm. I'm just gonna like drop a little seed in this conversation that people you know can go and explore. I'm not financial advice. This is not financial advice. But um, as I understand it, and I've been doing some explorations around some other um, assets um, that I'm that I'm looking to 
move uh, for a variety of reasons in a variety of ways. Um, within a company structure, which is typically a trust with a trustee company and, and all of this kind of stuff, you potentially have the capability to defer your CGT payment by up to two years. And the premise of this is if, let's say, just, just pretend you're a company, right? And you've sold some assets and you've liquidated some assets. The premise is that you effectively say, right, give me two years to repurpose this capital into another asset because I'm going to repurpose it. I'm not just going to realize the gain and take it home and go and spend it. So it gets re- it's like a retained earning within the company and you sort of like keep it on the balance sheet so that you can find another asset to put it into. And if you do that within two years, you don't pay the CGT on it. And so, which is, which you, when you start then thinking about how this relates to a buy and sell type strategy, again, go and get your own advice from a really good accountant on that, right? Go and get your own advice from a really good accountant on that, anyone listening to this. But for a different type of asset, for a different type of purpose, I've had advice that actually specifically is that, hey, you can sell those assets and uh, we can defer the capital gains payment for up to two years so that you can reposition that capital into another asset. And if you do that, you won't pay the CGT, which takes a lot of the, like that's a pretty big component of the kind of like sell side cost, which again is going to help you to magnify your capital because the the 133% gain that you, or return that you got on your uh, initial 122, if you got, if you turn that into 285 and let's just, let's just say for a second, um, you could, you just forget about the CGT. If you got another um, 133% gain on that in another three years, you'd be up to 370 um, nine thousand dollars, which would be, you know, wild. One hundred and twenty-two to three seventy-nine in in six years if you did that. But imagine if you didn't have to pay the CGT component on it as well. That'd be huge. And so that's definitely something I think people should be thinking about. Totally, and and that's part of the argument for the buy and hold, isn't it? Because you can pull equity without having to pay capital gains. You still have to pay it eventually when you sell the property. But that that's part of the argument for buy and hold is that you don't have to pay CGT if you just keep pulling equity and rolling forward. But at some point, as as we know, you, you, you hit a wall where you can't just keep pulling equity because you're limited by your own serviceability. And at that point, yeah, that, that's where I've come to that realisation that it's worth selling, paying the tax and moving on. But if there's a way to defer that and, and then and have that money that you would otherwise have paid tax earning for you, even if it's for two years or if or longer, then that's that's a huge win. It's another leverage piece really. Yeah, totally. So it's definitely worth looking into. Nick, as always, I've enjoyed our conversation. It's always interesting, fun, uh, insightful. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed it as well. It's been great. Love to hang out with you, Keith. Awesome. And guys, if you're listening to this and you've enjoyed it, if you've found something in this that you think is valuable, interesting, or maybe you think it's absolute garbage, take the opportunity to share this with somebody else and tell them how you feel because that's going to help more people get access to these ideas. It's going to help more people to build wealth, become more successful, and live a life of freedom, choice, and abundance, which is the absolute goal. And of course, if you want help to accelerate your property journey, then to be on the winning side of property, then head to dash.com.au forward slash discovery, book in a call, have a chat with the team, see where you're at, see where your constraints are, and see how you can get started today as well. Nick, great to see you. I'll see you again soon. See you soon, mate.